I'm Richard, and welcome to S. Torque's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of February 17, 2014. Join us this week as we talk with Gail Banks, the guru of automotive turbocharging, about the mentors and apprenticeships that shaped his career in high performance. We'll also visit with Eric Lopez, a Los Angeles city planner, to learn about zoning changes intended to create a more transit and pedestrian-oriented city and new tools for development for downtown L.A. So stay tuned. Los Angeles. El Pueblo. Lotus Land. The City of Angels. The Day of the Locust. The Slide Area. Where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear. But you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs in the mix. They add flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to Fifth and Main. As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway. Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city. Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules. Rainer Banham said that. He taught us well. In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation. Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir. Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown. The Real Black Dahlia. Positive public space, endangered landmarks, forgotten lore, memory maps, mysteries, murder, the allocation of resources, the hidden forces that shape public policy, Skid Row, Bunker Hill, preservation, restoration, redevelopment, it's a four-letter word, Los Angeles, you can't eat the sunshine, but you can drive around and take a long, hard look, and listen to the stories, and pass them on. Why are we doing this again? Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason. So did Rainer Banham. So we did. Now let's begin. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of February 17, 2014. This week, our guest will be Gail Banks. He is the turbocharging guru of high performance and a regular person on this podcast. We'll also be talking to Eric Lopez. He is a city planner in the city of Los Angeles, and we'll be talking with him about um, the, tool, the new toolbox for downtown the new toolbox, and if that makes little sense, by the end of his interview, it will all become clear. Kim, we're back. Hi. Hi. The Pishka. The Pishka is that Russian-sounding digital tip jar associated with this podcast, and we're always grateful for contributions from listeners who want to help fund our excursions into the Southland, looking for wonderful people to talk to for you to listen to. If you're inclined to donate a little bit, you can find the virtual tip jar on this podcast page. Donations are always appreciated, never obligatory, and we thank you for listening. 
Good setup, Kim. Thank you so much. We're going to just jump on in to the, the deep end, which is closely watched trains. A lot of sharks in the deep end this week, Kim. Are you ready? Yes. I don't like sharks. I mean, I like them, but, you know. Rufus. Right. Okay. I went on a real rampage against the Bahuka family. I don't even know the name of the family who owned the Bahuka, um, who left this beautiful, uh, friendly, Elderly. thirty, yeah, thirty-something-year-old senior citizen fish named Rufus in the closed restaurant for a year in the dark, and. I'm not going to go on a rampage again about how awful that was when there were people who wanted to take this lovely fish and give him a home. But the fact of the matter is uh, the Tiki community and uh, Hidden L.A., um, our friend Lynn, have been working behind the scenes trying to find a solution for the problem of Rufus. And the latest word is that one of the locations that a lot of the Tiki people have put forward is a really great alternative home for him, Damon's in Glendale, which, although it's now in a new location because the, the mall was built and they lost their old building, it is a very old-school Tiki restaurant. In fact, uh, I believe it's in Mildred Pierce, Damon's. Okay, Mildred, okay. Y- y- kind yeah, of, yes. The, it's, yes, it's used as a, lo- okay, in the film... Mildred Pierce. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Vita. Okay, we're going to get this right, Kim. Okay. Okay. Then we'll get back to the fish story. We're, we're going to get it right because you brought it up. Okay. Yes. In the film, Mildred Pierce, Vita takes up at a nightclub run by Wally, the former <laughs> business partner, on at the end of the Santa Monica Pier. So because it's on the end of the Santa Monica Pier, it's a tiki bar. And they used... Damon's Tiki Bar Lounge nightclub in Glendale as the interior for this. Oh my gosh, you were you were fighting with me because the exterior makes it look like it's on the pier. It's Damon's old school Tiki, so a really great home for Rufus. And now the question is: Thank you, Richard. I appreciate your James M. Kane marginalia always. The question is: Can this old fish, who's been in the same tank for decades? tank that's too small for him, by the way. Uh, be safely moved. Can Damon's take him on? There's some care issues. So hopefully uh, the next time we tune in and talk to you, we'll be able to give you some good news about Rufus safely making the move. But I know other people want to get their hands on this little fishy. He's, hey, listen, he's a moneymaker. People will come from miles around to feed this fish carrots and then buy expensive drinks. So whoever gets Rufus is going to be very happy. Let's just hope Rufus is happy. Yeah, let's just hope some really good... Um, Aquaculture guys? Tropical fish, aquatic, tropical fish, koi guys move Rufus because it's a... Like our friend Soybean and Thai stick? Okay, Kim, we're going to move on. We're gonna we know talk- some fish guys. Their names are Soybean and Thai stick. Let's go. <laughs> okay, Kim, I miss them. God bless them. We're... <laughs> You, Would you, you like me to continue? I'm no, sorry. somehow I miss them, but somehow somehow our life is easier without them showing up at our house at seven o'clock in the morning, reminding me that I owe them fifty dollars and they need it right now because they're going to a koi show. <laughs> yeah, so. I will gladly pay you Thursday for a koi fish today. Um, yeah, we're gonna move on, Kim. God bless them. Yeah, so uh, interesting article, public policy article about McMansions and the, the, the real problem with ordinances 
trying to prevent McMansionization of the city of Los Angeles. By and which you mean people building new residences that are flush to the property line and very inappropriate for their communities. Right. And and long, interesting article. Don't don't have time, don't have the inclination to go into it. Just simply will point out the problem all comes from building and safeties entirely obfuscated, completely shrouded, enigmatic demolition permit process. And and that's the point of us bringing it up is is it all comes down to no transparency on this issue and uh this is an issue that I think would do well with uh, uh some machine readability in terms of uh government government document publication. So Oh, I quite agree, but I'm pretty sure that if there was an RSS feed of demolitions in a 6 block radius of people's houses, everybody would be against every demolition. <laughs> And I'm for that. That's that's why I brought it up. I know. Okay, Kim, Salvation Mountain, God is love. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite folk art environments in Southern California, Salvation Mountain, out near Slab City, Nyland, California, built by Leonard Knight, who just passed away um, after spending a couple of years in a nursing home. Leonard was just a delightful character who um, came out across the country with this hot air balloon. Um, I think he came from Maine. He was definitely a New Englander. He had this hot air balloon that said, God is love, and this was a message that he wanted to sail through the air. But um, hot air balloons are pretty hard for just guys in trucks to maintain. So his his hot air balloon died, and he found himself near Slab City, which is a place where the snowbirds camp out for free on um, BLM land, right? Yes. BLM. And... um, he just stayed put, and he got this vision that he could actually build a mountain out of what was then just a sand hill. And he started pouring surplus paint, and he built this giant latex, multicolored, psychedelic message, much bigger than a hot air balloon, that said, God is love. And he built these fabulous little um, beehive-type structures that you could go down into, and they were quite cool in the summertime. And he lived on site with his cats, and he would play his guitar. And if you visited, you could come and help paint the place. And he'd just talk about his vision of a completely freeing, non-hierarchical love of Christ. And he's a really, really right-on guy. And I would like to send him off with a bang. Bang. His work is going to live on. I think all attempts by the government to shut down Salvation Mountain are long in the past. It's recognized as a a really lovely place and not a toxic hazard. So here's to Salvation Mountain lasting on long past Leonard. Okay, last closely watched terrain also has to do with hillsides. Glacelle Land, uh, we interviewed a couple weeks back our friend Justin. He's a uh, contextual artist. He works in the environment, the landscape, and he talked about his Glacelle Land sign, and they set up an Indiegogo project, and they have so far exceeded, so very far exceeded, their goal of $500, their Kim what, at, at two, about $2,600? Yeah, so the Glacelle Land sign, which has appeared in a couple of places on uh, northeast LA hills and is now gone, um, is definitely going to be rebuilt on a friendly piece of property, which means the property owners will not be seeking to remove it. And because they have exceeded their goals in terms of financing, it's going to be a more elaborate project than um, initially proposed, and a lot of people are going to get some really nifty premiums in exchange, so look for Glacelle Land on a hillside near you soon. 
Good job, Kim. Thank you for helping me get through that. Kim, I want to just quickly look ahead to some upcoming events. Um, you know, last week was your book signing. I know that's in the past, but I imagine you have one or two fans of your fiction out there, and so maybe because of the fact we are in the event center, you can just just give us a wrap-up of your book signing. Oh, thanks, Richard. Yeah, we had a really nice Thursday night book signing at Skylight Books in Los Feliz, and it was very well attended with a lot of new and old faces and um, wonderful questions from the audience on, you know, the the real history of 1929 L.A., Raymond Chandler, and uh, real-life Philip Marlowe, Thomas H. James, who figure in this book that I wrote, and some questions about writing process, which got me thinking. And then we had a break with a really lovely cake that you provided, Richard, which had uh, Paul Rogers' gorgeous cover art of The Kept Girl on it, and that was from the L.A. Baking Company, who have this wonderful machine that makes uh, any digital file you give them it, it extrudes it. File. Image file, yeah. Well, yeah, they're not going to put my book. They could put the whole book, I guess. They could put a page of the book on a cake. But no, they put the if book it, if cover. It were a, a J, if you gave them an, a JPEG file that was an image of a page of your book, they could do that. Yeah. But in this case, it was the cover art, and it was gorgeous. And we had a nice little problem. Um, our friend Mark Chevalier, our Mark Chevalier, the Oviat building historian, um, was so excited he got the best piece of, of the icing, which was Raymond Chandler's pipe from the middle of the cake, and he was carrying it around on a plate, and he was so excited to, you know, sit down in a quiet place and eat Raymond Chandler's pipe, and I forced him to pose for a photo, and, oh, yeah. and he tilted the plate up so that you could see the pipe sort of near his mouth, and it promptly fell on the ground. And he was very, very sad, and I got icing all over my dress. But, you know, that was a nice sort of cheerful ending to what I think was a terrific party. Thank you, Skylight, and thank you all the nice folks who came out, including quite a few of the subscribers to The Kept Girl. It's, uh, it's really out there now. We have a book. Mazel tov, Kim. Kim, let's look ahead. This month's salon, our monthly salon, is uh, this coming Sunday, the 23rd, and after the salon is, of course, my... Uh, nearly monthly walking tour on Broadway, Broadway on my mind. The walking tour will be focusing on John Parkinson. We're going to look at, at Parkinson Alley on 5th Street between uh, at Broadway, at Spring, and at Hill. Stephen G., the author of Iconic Vision, uh, John Parkinson, Los Angeles architect, will be joining me, and it's going to be a great walk. The Salon, which is at noon, the walks are two. The Salon, we're going to have... A couple guests, uh, Joe Esterly and Count Smokula will be... Smokula. Smokula. That's okay, I know why you did it. Think of the Smokula. He, well, because, because, he, because he chain smokes while he plays the accordion, which is very charming. And, um, and possible in a private club, not a public space. Because um, the athletic club. Yeah. Yeah, you missed that one. Anyway, Joe and the Count are back. They they gave it they gave a great performance a couple years back. They're back. Back when we were at Clifton's. Oh, back back when we were at Clifton's, but Clifton's was closed for ah. two weeks, and we had to do it at the Athletic Club. Oh, anyway, that's right. Yeah, they're great. Joe's going to talk about his weird California, weird Hollywood, weird Las Vegas books. The Count will play some songs on the accordion. The second presentation, Fred Voss and. Joan Jobe Smith, they are husband and wife, uh, they are both poets, uh, they are both very much deeply in the, the poetry scene of 
Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s, which Charles Bukowski came out of. So they're going to read a lot from their work. They're going to touch on Charles Bukowski. They're just going to, they're, they're great. Fred is a machinist, right? He's my hero, right? Because he, he decided that his spiritual path was through tempering tool steel, which I highly identify with and deeply appreciate. So look forward to that salon in March, Kim. In addition to the salon, which we'll talk about in a second, we have the Crime Lab on the 16th. We do. We uh, go into the Cal State Los Angeles Teaching Crime Lab about four times a year as a fundraiser for the Criminalistics Graduate Department, who uh, I guess we're keeping in DNA tests, and you can be part of that. Come down to Professor Donald Johnson's Crime Lab, and we'll have our special guest, um, Frank Girardo, journalist and writer of the new book about the uh, Clark Rockefeller case, a case of a mysterious phony, a German pretending to be American royalty, well, British royalty as well. He was just everybody, everywhere. He was also almost certainly a murderer, and it all unfolded just to the north of Cal State LA in kind of the cheap seats at San Marino, and Frank covered the whole case, and so he'll be telling us all about um, the trial and the investigation and the one forgotten clue which really sealed the deal. On this case, we'll also be hearing some of um, Frank's most interesting, you know, uh, crime coverage stories that have really stuck with him through the years. Things from ride-alongs with the police and just oddball cases that he's investigated and written about. So, if you ever wanted to know what it's like to be a semi-small town crime reporter, you're going to want to come to this crime lab and learn all about it. Thank you, Kim. And then, of course, the the march. Lava Sunday Salon in March will feature Tom Sitton. He's going to talk about, he's a uh, curator emeritus at the Natural History Museum. He's a a prolific historian of Los Angeles County. And he's going to talk about the ten worst list of politicians in the county, 1850 to 1950. His list might exceed, might go uh, uh, ten years over into the 1960s. Oh, I hope so. The second presentation in the March Sunday Salon is, of course... Of course. Oh, it's me. That's right. Yeah, we're going to bring a little more of the uh, Kept Girl show on the road. I'm going to be talking about my novel of 1929, Los Angeles, and uh, the process of bringing these true crime narratives and literary history together into a fictional narrative. And we'll also, I'm so pleased to announce, have Paul Rogers, who did the beautiful cover art for The Kept Girl in the spirit of 1940s detective illustration. And he'll be talking about his creative process and how he goes out into the city of Los Angeles and finds little shards of the past, photographs them, takes them home to his artistic layer and transforms them into contemporary art images that are rooted in some of the styles and imagery of historic Los Angeles. I think it's going to be a really cool talk and uh, visual presentation and hope you can come. Good job, Kim. Thank you. All right, it's time to get on to the interviews. So to do that, we need to quickly set them up. We'll be interviewing Eric Second, so I'll talk about him first. Eric Lopez is a planner for the city of Los Angeles. He is in a working group that has been charged with... Let me get this, let me get this right, because this is very important and interesting. He's been charged with implementing the Unified Downtown Development Code. And that is a, a perhaps a highly technical way to say 
He is in a working group that has been charged with developing a very special and unique set of zoning and development tools just for downtown Los Angeles. It's pretty interesting stuff. It, it, what that means, and I will now say a third way of explaining what it is we're going to talk about that I hope will be even less obscure than the last two. Oh, please. Downtown is, is not Long Beach. Long Beach is not the city of Los Angeles. Downtown is not Pacoima. Downtown is not San Pedro. Downtown is not Beverly Hills. I've just main, named a lot of municipalities distinct in themselves. Downtown is not like anything else in Los Angeles, and it needs its own special tools. So Do you mean it, downtown is not Echo Park? Yeah. That's okay, that I mean. works. So it, it gets its own set of tools, and we're going to be talking about them. Uh, this is an ongoing series to help illuminate, clarify, and enlighten the general public as to what downtown moving into the 21st century, a century of transit and pedestrian paradigms, uh, what that's going to look like and how that's going to grow, along what lines that's going to grow. It's very interesting. He's a great guy. He'll be back a couple more times this year, and, and we look forward to that. Our first interview is going to be with Gail Banks. Gail Banks is a regular on this podcast. He is a a great soul, a dear friend, a national treasure. He is the turbocharging guru of high performance. He is one... <laughs> he won't even tell. He doesn't even remember. He just, every time he sets out to win a land speed record, he does it. He's a winner! He's, he's, he's unbelievable. Um, he's just, he's the best. This week, he's going to give us... A, he's, we, we've, we've done a lengthy interview with him on his mentorships and really how... Gail came to become Gail, uh, you know, starting with seemingly mundane yet charming camp counselor stories of him at 12, uh, apprentices with audio engineers, switch operators for the Union Pacific, switch operators at Union Station in the 1960s. Uh, these are just great stories, and all of it, of course, leads to some very succinct beautiful abstractions on on the nature of of mentorship and and becoming an adult and coming into your own and he's just it's it's going to be a great interview so let's take it away with our interview with gail gail we're here with you. We're back in Monrovia at your office. We're gonna. We um, last time we talked to you, we talked about a very, very small snippet of your of your younger years with your grandmother. We're now gonna work sort of around that and get us to you becoming a mechanical engineer and moving forward in 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 the performance, the world of automotive performance. To do that, we're gonna start where we ended our last podcast interview with your mother. And, and your mother's decision that, that the house was too small for three kids and two boys on summer break. So, so you were, um, it was decided that you were just going to get, get jobs. You were going to be taken under the wing by family members or friends. So why don't you start with, uh, give us, I think the year is 54. Yes. And it's 1954, your father, who has been a sworn officer in the LAPD for about five or six years, mm -hmm. gets you a job. At a camp, so let's just let's just start from there. Yeah, I'm 12 years old, 
and my dad swings a counselor's job at Camp Valcrest. It's up in Angeles Forest, and uh, I believe it is still there. Um, it was for juvenile delinquents. And I'm 12 years old, but I'm tall and uh, had filled out a bit. And I'm also very streetwise because I, I, I've been farmed out every summer to some relatives and, and finally settled with my grandmother when I was about eight. Uh, and, and when I was eight, I worked in my, my, my uncle's uh, interior decorating company. Uh, he did ma- manufactured Venetian blinds as well at the corner of Sunset and Glendale Boulevard. Uh, The the storefronts faced uh, Sunset. So, but that summer, 54, my dad got me this job as a camp counselor. So um, they take me up to Camp Valcrest, drop me off, and I'm there for the summer. I know nothing about being a camp counselor. I'm really underage for anything like this, and they're bringing in busloads of of kids, inner city kids of, of all races, who'd been bad boys, and were in juvenile hall, which was the lockup for juveniles. And this was th- their. First taste of nature, uh, and I remember I'd I'd been up there for about a week with uh, cops that ran the place, and I had two two jobs. One was to run the uh, water pump every morning and fill the tank on the hill from the spring below, uh, tend that, and. Uh, then the other one was to, I had my own area with five tent cabins, which were soft roof but framed wall, walls. With all, all the two-by-fours inside were bare. Uh, there were no windows or screens or doors. And um, the first busloads started arriving, and I knew these kids we're going to be a piece of work when a coyote goes running across the driveway and one of the kids goes, a reindeer. Oh, it's a reindeer. (laughs) A coyote. And I I went, wow, these kids, asphalt jungle, you know. So... The policemen, all cops have a very dry, droll sense of humor, and they they all pull things on each other. So so they they have this legend, or they did at that time, about this counselor who the kids were so bad that he went crazy, and they called him the mad counselor, and that he had tried to uh, uh, attack the policemen and 
they'd shot at him with a shotgun and part of his face was blown away and he came in the night and and don't let him get you so all these inner city kids up in the mountains it's dark as it can be we're we're all in our bunks our racks in the and I'm in the counselor's cabin and there's like eight kids in there with me and then four other cabins with eight, 10, 12 kids in them. And suddenly, gunfire. And this, one of the cops with ketchup on his face and, you know, go dressed up in torn clothing goes through our camp and the, and, and the other cops follow, firing into the air. And uh, shotgun blasts, pistols. After, after, after they go through, I suddenly, suddenly realize all the other kids are in my cabin. You know, one of them is under my bunk. And uh, this was just mayhem. And... But an exposure to, for me, uh, it was incredible because these these kids would chop each other. They would uh, talk about each other's mothers and what they saw the mother doing, and all this kind of stuff. And it would, and I, I thought, my God, if somebody said that to me, I'd kill them. And these guys are doing it to each other and just laughing and carrying on. And I caught on to, you know, I'm living out in Linwood nine months of the year, and that's like the boondocks. Uh, they were still farming out there. And these kids from the inner city, what an education that was. What got, what, what ended my career up there, I, there was a spring-fed tank, and it had a hatch in the top. And, and I... Notice that the cover, the hatch, was open. And, you know, I looked into the tank and there's a squirrel floating in there. So I fish the squirrel out of the tank. I start up the engine. I pump the water out of the, the tank to the tank on the hill above the camp to gravity feed the water system. About two days later, I come down with I, I don't know what, and so did a lot of other people uh, drinking that water. But I told one of the cops that I'd fished a squirrel out of that tank. Ah, it'll be fine, you know. So I'm feverish. Uh, my Uncle Lee, after two days, when the cops called my parents and my uncle came up and took me out of there. And it took me about a week and a half to get better. And then I went down and... And lived with my grandmother, and she tried to make me a preacher, and that didn't take because my mother caught on to it. But that—that that was the summer. That was the summer of 1954. Perfect. And people can listen to our previous podcast with you about this—the second part of your summer with your grandmother, with you as a charismatic. Yes. It's, it's a it's a great story. So. So we're going to, actually, what I forgot to do was I forgot to have you introduce yourself properly. Ah. And, and I want you 
in the course of your introducing yourself properly to let people know how many land speed records um, your cars you've designed have won. Okay. <laughs> uh, my name's Gail Banks, uh, and I own a company called Gail Banks Engineering. And we're an automotive performance company. Uh, I am a gearhead. Uh, there is no 12-step program for me. I will be a gear, gearhead until I die. Uh, no salvation. Uh, land speed records, drag race records, offshore racing records, uh, river racing records, uh, Parker nine-hour boat enduro wins. Uh, I have no idea how many. Uh, all I, knew, I know is, without exception, in now 56 years, because I started this when I was 16. We've never failed to get a record or win a championship. If we set out to, to do it, that's our heritage. We we do it. it. It I've never fallen on my face uh, in in front of the public. I've done plenty of it. <laughs> behind closed doors or practicing sessions where we broke things, but we rare, rarely break anything. So I'm proud of that heritage. Perfect. Okay, so that's since you were 16, you said. So this is good. This is, this is let's, you're 16, maybe you're 17. You'll, you'll let me know. I want to resume this summers of being taken under the wing of relatives or friends. With your uncle, the physicist. Yes. Okay, so this is really where is CP Auto Marine really begins probably to gel in your mind. CP Auto Marine being your, your performance shop. Mm -hmm. You started, and this is, should be obvious to everyone at this point. This is your path. So, so let's, let's go to Whittier, to that farm in Whittier with your uncle, and let's start your career as an engineer. Yeah, and this is pivotal. I, I, in 1958, I won the, my high school science fair. I, I, I built a, a, a radio-controlled electric tra tra tractor, and uh, I would sit on my dad's porch, and it would mow the lawn, and I would control it with my little transmitter. So that was my first vehicle build. It was electric. I'm a futurist, uh, and... Today, electricity is very much in vogue. Uh, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do another podcast about that later. Just keep okay. moving. So, uh, summer of 59, I am farmed out, uh, kicked out of the house. And uh, my, my great uncle, Dale O'Donnell, worked for a guy named Ralph Allison. And he had a laboratory up Turnbull Canyon. Uh, he had bought a mansion. It had a uh, bomb shelter, and it had a, a large guest house. The laboratory w was in the guest house. The business was audiometers for, for clinical hear, hearing uh, evaluation. Ralph had invented the hearing aid uh, at the University of Minnesota in 
1935. Uh, he then invented the audiometer. I believe that was 1936. And uh, a very simple hearing testing device. Uh, there were guys there uh, who had done their master's thesis on uh, sound reproduction, a 10-inch speaker that was full spectrum, no woofer, tweeter, or mid-range. This guy did it with a 10-inch cone-type speaker. And it was tested down at Altec Lansing. Uh, Altec Lansing had a laboratory and manufacturing point at 1515 Manchester Avenue in Anaheim, directly adjacent to the, the, Disneyland, the Disney property, Disneyland. This is cool. My project was to de design an audiometer about the size of a flashlight, flashlight with two C-cells in it for jet engine mechanics, a new emerging technology. And um, so I, I got to go to the anechoic chamber, which is a sound absorbing room where you test microphones and speakers and hearing aids and audiometers or whatever you want to test at that laboratory. Uh, and they were building the Matterhorn at Disneyland. And, and it was like 250 yards from the door to the darn lab. The lab. Here they're building a mountain in the orange groves out of, you know, it was all orange groves. Anaheim was not developed, uh, just like Disney uh, World uh, in Orlando. It was all rural. So that set me on my course. Uh, I, I was interested in electronics in, in high school. I wanted to go to Cal Poly Pomona and I started a business called CP apostrophe S, CP's Auto and Marine for my school money. And of course, CP being Cal Poly. And I didn't change that name until 1967 when I set up my first retail frontage in San Gabriel, on San Gabriel Boulevard near Mission. It then became Gale Banks Engineering. And, and one uh, a, a regular in your shop on San Gabriel was, of course, the physicist. Who, just, just, just as an aside, tell us one of your favorite customers from, from Caltech. I'm having a senior moment. Richard Feynman. Oh, of course. Uh, you know, Richard Feynman uh, had a Corvair van and later a Dodge van. Both of them had Feynman diagrams on, on the outside of them. <laughs> Are you familiar with what a Feynman diagram? I'm familiar with the Feynman diagram. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and and uh, he hung out with a fellow named Jerry Zorthian, Jariar Zorthian. Uh, the Zorthian Ranch, ranch is at the top of either Lake Avenue or Aldadena Drive. It's up in the mountains. And he was a free spirit, an artist, bohemian, uh, Jerry. Uh, and so was Richard. Richard had this side to him, which was alternate. He was an alt personality, 
he also participated in the Manhattan Project. And uh, they, Jerry and Richard, made a pact that if, and I, th- I think Richard initiated this, if Jerry would teach him art, he would teach Jerry physics. Well, that was a one-way street. <laughs> he never taught Jerry any physics. But Richard also had an eye for the ladies, and he wanted, wanted to paint uh, portraits of ladies, uh, hopefully nude. And uh, they had started a topless bar on Valley Boulevard near San Gabriel Boulevard called The Other Ball. Now, the original uh, was the ball in Santa Monica. So this was the other ball. How clever. Uh, I'd love to meet the guy that named that place. So to shorten up the story, Richard is driving his Corvair van with a ballistic nose on it. He, He made it more aerodynamic with Jerry, down to the other ball to uh, hire models from the topless bar, uh, which they did, and he painted them, and you can probably find stuff online about uh, Feynman's uh, painting and sketching. Uh, he stops in my shop one day, and he says, "I want. Uh, what is it you do here? And, and I told him, we modify engines and make things faster. And he says, well, um, I want to make this core of air faster. It's, it's, it's very gutless, and I've helped the aerodynamics. By... It must have been fiberglass, but I, I didn't even know the term fiberglass. But he, he, he'd done this nose uh, uh, to make it more aerodynamic. It looked like Jay Leno. It had a big chin under the windshield. So... Have you ever read Jay's book, Leading with My Chin? What a clever title. What a cool guy. So anyhow, we become friends. And uh, oddly, in in 1975, after the first fuel crunch, uh, the Ford Foundation puts up a grant for future engine study and future fuel study. And it's a $400,000 grant, and it's won by Caltech. And they assign it to JPL. Well, Richard was in residence at Caltech. So he enlists, he tells the guys at Caltech, if you need a facilitator, I know this guy. So we, for about a year, participated with the guys at JPL in this study, and it was finally published, uh, I think, uh, 1976. Uh, in the process, we did this hydrogen-burning Chevrolet V8 four-door four sedan, uh, and he comes for lunch one day, and he has a guy with him. Hey, you want to go up to Marie Callender's on Las Tunas and have lunch? And I said, yeah, let's do it. 
So I pile in the back seat, and the guy's in the back seat, and another guy's with Richard in the front seat. There's three of them. So I want to be cordial. I, I turn to this fellow, and I say, so tell me what you do at Caltech. He says, I'm cataloging subatomic particles. The guy's name is Murray Gelman. The quark. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm so lame, I, I, I don't even know. Uh, I, I never heard of him. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's okay, Cal. It's, it's, <laughs> we're, get, we're getting very far afield from, I, from I automotive design. I'm sorry. No, I mean, there's nothing. This is such a good story. Okay, so we have, to, we have to get back on track. So we're leaving Richard and the strippers and <laughs> yes. the Corvair van right. and San Gabriel Boulevard and Valley behind us. We're taking a deep breath. We're looking ahead. You're going to get a degree in mechanical engineering at Cal Poly. You have, you have this CPs, auto and marine. You're running this business out of your dorm room. Mm -hmm. It's going very well, but there are some, some, dry, there are some dry spots. So we, we, we want to sort oh. of finish up. Uh, the, there are no more summers out of the house because you're now at school. And technically, this is not a summer job, but just to wrap this up, I want you to describe one of your last great jobs to make ends meet, and that would be with the, the Union Pacific Railroad. Yeah. Uh, I've had a friend, uh, Lee Salmon, whose uncle was a road foreman of engines for the Union Pacific. And I had a long dry spell. I was selling a little bit, but I was starving to death. And I needed a night job. And Lee says, you know, on the railroad, they run 24 hours a day. They don't shut down at 5 o'clock. And you could work nights or mornings, which would, nights was 4 to midnight, and mornings was midnight to 8. And so... I went down to to the yard office at Washington Boulevard near the Long Beach Freeway. Goes over the yards today, and I go into this wood frame building in the middle of the river yards, where Bill Sandlin had his office. He was the road foreman of engines, and I wanted to hire on, and it, he was Lee Salmon's uncle. In, I go through the door, and there's uh, like a picket fence, you know, a railing with balusters, and behind that sits, it's a, it's a single large room with a small office in one corner to the right, and behind the, behind the fence. And I meet Mrs. North, and Mrs. North didn't want to hire me didn't even want me to see Mr. Sandlin. I go repeatedly because I want I wanted to be a switchman and work in the yards and uh, do it at night and, and go to school in the daytime. And, and if I have an engine to build or whatever, I'd do it on weekends or whenever. When you're that young and that healthy, four hours a night, was about all I slept, uh, and I was re really starving to death. Uh, I lived for three weeks on a case of Seago diet drink, 
it was kind of a chocolatey diet drink. That's all a friend of mine had a case of it. And he says, I I failed at my diet. Do you want this stuff? So I lived on this stuff for three weeks. I blossomed out with giant blemishes. My skin tone went to hell. So I'm starving to death. Finally, one day I go in and Mrs. North is not there. She's off sick. I, on the railing, I knock on the railing, and, I, and Bill Sandlin goes, come on in. So I open the gate in the railing, and I go into his office. I t- tell him who I am. I want to hire on as a switchman. Let me get the papers. I fill out the papers, and I circumvented Mrs. North. Uh, I later found out that I was not of the the proper religion. The Union Pacific had a lot of people working for it who were of a certain religion, and I wasn't one of them. But Bill Sandlin didn't give it a a damn. And uh, so I... I, I trained for a few weeks. I took the rules exam, and the proctor said, took, asked me to wait after everybody left the examining room, and he says, you really scored well on the exam, and uh, you seem like a well-set-up guy. How'd you like to be an engineman? I said, what does that mean, an engineman? He says, well... You couldn't be an engineer. Engineer, it takes. You have to be a fireman right. for so many years to to graduate to being an engineer. But you could be a locomotive fireman. Uh, you really have to know the rules accurately because you have to receive the telegraph. We had no radios in the engines back then, so you grabbed the train orders as you're going down the road off of a fork stick with a rubber band in the, in the telegram. And it told you of all the tr- trains that were, were catching you and all the trains opposing you. And you had to have a railroad watch that was incredibly precise. And you directed, as the fireman, when you went into sidings and trains overtook you or passed you. These were freight trains in it. At the time, passenger travel on the railroads was awesome. It was an experience, not Amtrak. And um, so I hired on as a fireman and uh, had some real harrowing experiences. It was uh, an incredible uh, early 60s uh, Unloading hogs at Farmer John's. Uh, the Woodier, uh, Woodier Fullerton, Fullerton local. We'd leave the railroad yards and come back 16 hours later. It was a feather bedding job. We'd stop in a draw and hide the train, so to speak, because only one train ever ran on that line, and we were it. We'd take the throttle lever out, leave the engine running, and we hike down the tracks out of this draw to a Curry's ice cream store 
in Whittier, and we'd ha have ice cream, be there a couple of hours, come back to the terrain, and cre creep down to Fullerton. The reason it wasn't more than 16 hours, it, it was against the fe federal law for the engine man to run more than 16 hours. So we'd get back to the, I mean, this is like a 18 mile trip down to Fullerton and 18 miles back and it took us 16 hours to do the trip. Now the rails were bad and you couldn't go real fast, but my God. So the best was working the switch engine at the Los Angeles Union Passenger Terminal downtown. Let me, let me, so just, yeah, this is where all the heavy lifting is going to happen. This is a great story. I want you to be very specific as to where this terminal was because it's gone now, and so I just want people to get a sense. Well, actually, Union Station is still there. It is the, it is the hub. It, it's at the foot of Sunset Boulevard, and cross street being Alameda. Right. I'm sorry. I thought you were working in. That's right. This is the passenger yard. I, I'm yeah. sorry. The freight yard, which is now the cornfield park. That's that's, that's gone. gone. That's gone. Uh, the cornfield uh, was, I believe, Santa Fe. That's right. And uh, there was a. We exchanged freight cars with Santa Fe and with Southern Pacific in a, a place called the 4th Street Exchange Yard, which was right along the river. Uh, but LAUPT, we could do a segment on LAUPT. That w was a life experience. Having lunch every day at Alvera Street, having the, the woman read my, my palm every day, and it was different every day. Uh, getting, getting free eats at La Luz del Dia, uh, knowing everybody on Alvera Street, uh, also the uh, French dip sandwiches uh, from uh, Felipe's. Yeah. Uh, there's railroad pictures in Felipe. He's like mad. LA Union Passenger Terminal, terminal, terminal is built at the site of Chinatown the old Chinatown that was in Los Angeles. It has been in so many movies, it's unbelievable. But the coolest part was running the switch engine in the terminal. There are 52 rails coming in there, three railroads. Uh, and it was a, a summer, no school, I took, took uh, it was a day job, so I ran my business late afternoons, nights, and weekends. And they had a run called the San Diego, and it would come up from San Diego. Uh, there were no uh, Padres. If you want to see a, a Major League ba Baseball game and you, you lived in San Diego, uh, you drove up here and saw the Dodgers or the Angels. Uh, and a lot of businessmen got together. They had bought a private car. They'd put it on the back of the San Diego, San Diego and they'd come up to L.A. They'd pull into the terminal. We'd pull up with switch engine and take the 
private car and p put it into uh, rails that were specifically for that. The guys would come out, they were enthralled with the, uh, our switch engine and the whole railroad thing. And they hand, hey, you want some coffee? And they'd give me a coffee cup with, with right. liquor in it. <laughs> I could have been fired on the spot for that. Right. And uh, they'd give you the Wall Street Journal or whatever. Uh, it was bridging old railroad and current railroad in the, that the fireman was still there, but he didn't shovel coal. Uh, you were responsible for the condition of the locomotive and whether the sand worked. The sand sprayed sand between the wheel and the rail for better traction, like on a mountain. Uh, I, I, I had a spell with a, an engineer. His name was Litzing. Or, uh, they called him Captain Jet. There was a five-mile-an-hour speed limit in the terminal. We'd commonly hit 30 miles an hour. But I had to make sure the sand worked so he could get enough traction to accelerate. Uh, I don't know how he was not fired. Uh, dignitaries would come up on the engine. Uh, we would uh, set out cars with, there was a mortuary there. Uh, we'd set out cars for the mortuary. Uh, the mail would come in in mail cars. Uh, terminal Annex is right across the, the street. There's a, a covered conveyor that went over to Terminal Annex. We'd pull the, the mail cars off, put them in the correct rails. And um, it was just an incredibly romantic place to work. The, I, I still, uh, there's a restaurant called Tracks, which is in the uh, terminal. And I haven't been there for a couple of years, but a nice bar, what have you. Take my wife down there and uh, relive it. Just relive it. Wonderful time. We have, we have to wrap this up. These are amazing stories. We're going to do just a whole episode on the switch, on, on, the, on switching, okay. the manually, because it's amazing. We started with your mother and the notion of you having to go out and find mentors. Let's, let's end with that. So we're, you, you, you somehow manage to scrape it by. You get your, your engineering degree, and you take off. This is a very important engine builder, very, perform, very important performance engineer. Repeat again for us what it was you took away from all of these experiences, and you now get to give back. So, so the roles are switched now. When I was young, I was forced to hang out with older people. Uh, you know, my grandmother, I, for a number of those summers, I, I lived downtown Los Angeles with my grandmother, worked with my uncle, uh, learned to, to sell, uh, worked uh, manufacturing things. Uh, but the main thing was... Having the counsel of older people, I now realize it gave me an advantage over my peers. And um, even when I started at Cal Poly, 
I was older. Uh, I graduated from high school and worked a, a solid year to, to build up some savings before I started college. And that year, and with all those mentors and being uh, treated as a, an adult literally from the time I was eight years old, we're working alongside adults in business, um, has bridged uh, me to, to today. I'm very, very, very comfortable uh, dealing with anybody. Uh, nothing intimidates me. Now, I've brought in to my business, and I associate with younger people, trying to pay it forward, so to speak. I've even got one guy I'm mentoring whose business is in rural Indiana. So they are not just guys here. Uh, and I'm helping him. He's a good young man, and he needs to succeed because he's a good, hardworking young man. So the older guy can make it easier for the younger guy. He, he can tell him his mistakes. And sometimes the mistakes, uh, you, know, you know, an answer to any problem, it, 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 there's only one right answer and an infinite number of mistakes <laughs> that you can make. <laughs> so to find the right thing, uh, you sometimes make four or five mistakes in your design or your business approach or what have you. But when you have a guy who's made 56 years worth of mistakes uh, advising you, your, your odds are way better as a young man. So to anybody less than 40 years old listening to this, they're not old people. They're knowledgeable people. Gail, you did it. Thank you. That was, we're going to come back. We have so much to talk about. We, we have interviewed you about four or five times. We keep looking to the past. I think it's time when we come back and visit you again, we're going to start to look to the future. They want to talk about the internal combustion engine, mm -hmm. its limitations, all, all, every, all, the all, all the alternatives, yes. everything Monsieur Carnot taught us back in the 1830s yes. and what holds today, what doesn't. Um, but we're, but that, that's to come. Kale, I want to thank you. You are a, you're a national treasure. Oh, my God. I, I still have to pay at Starbucks. So if I'm a national treasure, <laughs> somebody has to tell Starbucks. My name is Noel Alumit with Skylight Bookstore in Los Feliz, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Eric, I'm here with you. We're in uh, room seven, office 701 in the city planning department. I want you to properly introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Eric Lopez. I am a city planner that's uh, assigned to the new uh, planning initiative, Recode LA. 
the comprehensive uh, zoning or uh, revision of the zone, city zoning code. Perfect. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about. So let's see. I'm looking. Um, I'm look. Okay. This is this is this is going to be a good one. Okay. We've already talked to Tom in the separate podcast. I need you to bring us up to speed. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to get bring it very specific, very quickly. I want you to explain what the zoning code is and where it sits in the body of the general municipal code. Okay. Well, the zoning code is chapter one of the municipal code, like you stated. Um, and uh, essentially, that is where all the city's development rules are and what, what you can use your property for and how it can be developed. Uh, so that, that's generally what it covers. Uh, among many things, it covers you know everywhere from the valley to the Venice to downtown. So a variety of different neighborhoods are all uh, theoretically regulated by this zoning code. Perfect. Okay. As you just said a minute ago, you, you are one of the people tasked with revamping the zoning code. We have a whole, and I'll stop saying this, but with, with Tom, Tom gave us a fantastic overview of this, this larger challenge. I want you to talk about one of the three deliverables your department has been tasked with for this revamp. We're the first of three, and we'll come back and we'll talk about the subsequent deliverables. But the first deliverable is um, the downtown development code. So everything you've just told us, the zoning code, this is all obsolete. This is all old-fashioned. I want you now to start to tell us about this, this new toolkit, this downtown development code is going to give downtown. And I want you to start with the, the, the motivations, specifically in downtown, that, that, that is causing you to create this new toolkit. Right. So essentially the, the core issue here is that the same amount, the same set of tools that apply, let's say, in Chatsworth or San Pedro uh, and downtown, I mean, they're all the same. Uh, and so the problem here is that a lot of what we do for downtown is actually uh, done through zoning exceptions. Uh, so what's and there's different downtown specific initiatives and ordinances that have been uh, put in place over the years that just need to be consolidated. And essentially, instead of uh, planning through that exception, we want to plan in more of the affirmative. A lot, of, uh, a lot of hard work has been done over the years in terms of identifying the vision and the goals for downtown. And we, now we just need a new set of uh, zoning tools to help implement that vision, to make it a reality. Perfect. Okay, let's, um, let's just in, 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 in coming up to where we're going, why don't, we've, we've, already, so we've already talked about these, these result-oriented tools. That's this new toolkit. Um, another, another aspect of the Downtown Development Code, adaptive reuse. Do you just quickly want to touch on this? This is a topic. Gosh, I've talked to a lot of people on this podcast. This is, this is a really important subject. So I want you to contextualize adaptive reuse, which is something I think a lot of people listening have heard of. Contextualize it in this, this revamp, this new toolkit, and where it sits in that toolkit. Okay, so adaptive reuse is a great example of like one of the reasons we're creating the downtown code specifically for, for downtown here. Uh, is that it's it's a unique place. There's a lot of conditions here that aren't present in other parts of the city. So with adaptive reuse there, uh, it was determined that in order to be able to reuse some of these older buildings that were built with at a time when no parking or, or cars weren't even a, 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 in the picture uh, or not really, you know, thought about very often, uh, where these uh, 
buildings wanted to change use from one use to another, they couldn't provide the required parking. So in downtown, they essentially created an exception that you wouldn't, you didn't necessarily have to provide any additional parking. So there was, that's one of the examples of why downtown is is so unique. Um, so yes, perfect. So really, this downtown development code, we're going to go from coding by exception to coding for the results that that you want. And so, just just to wrap this up, tell us. So you've got you've got a, a couple milestones, a couple deliverables. You're you're going you're to give with just the downtown development code. What 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 is the goal then? A a a, a process. What is what is the process that all of this is 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 hoping to achieve? Obviously efficiency. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's some uh, you know significant investment in infrastructure in downtown in terms of transit, uh, and uh, you know it has additional capacity that wasn't in place before. Uh, so r r the whole goal here, like I mentioned before, is results oriented. Uh, we want to be. A, we want to code for what we want in downtown. And in downtown, uh, you know, there are, there are circumstances that are present here that, that aren't in other parts of the city. So, uh, you know, we could, you could build a high rise here with, you know, not much, not much traffic impact. So, you know, in terms of you know saying, you know, this is if you're going to build high rises anywhere in downtown in a, in a fast track, this is probably the place to do it. So, um, I mean, that's generally what we're trying to do here is identify what it is that the vision is, which is what we've done over the years with community planning, and then create the tools to help realize it with, uh, you know, as much uh, ex you know, expediency as possible. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Okay, great. You did a great job. You did a great job. We, um, we left. We, we, we're leaving for future interviews, a couple milestones, but we'll come back to those. But this is... This is great stuff. I, w I want to thank you, and we'll have you back. Thank you. My name's Jim Dawson. I'm here at Skylight Books in Hollywood, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast for the week of February 17th, 2014. Our guests this week were Eric Lopez. He is a Plan city planner for the city of Los Angeles. And we also spoke with Gail Banks. He is the turbocharging guru of high performance. I um, am so grateful for everyone listening, and I hope you continue to. And Kim, I want you to remind people about how they can, they can give us feedback. Let us know what they think. Just get into the loop, because we love it. And, and don't forget iTunes. Okay, I won't. Thanks. Um, it's true. We like hearing from podcast listeners. You can send us an email at youcaneatthesunshine at gmail.com or through the contact link at www.esotoric.com. You can come and see us at an esoteric bus adventure most Saturdays throughout the year or at one of the occasional free or paid lava events such as the Sunday Salon or the Crime Lab Seminar. We're not at every lava event because lava events are hosted by different people, but those, those ones we're at. You can also, if you're inclined, and we hope you are, if you listen through the iTunes iTunes portal or you simply have an iTunes account or you have nothing better to do with your time, go into iTunes and give us a rating. It helps other people find the podcast and, uh, you know, the more people who listen, the more people who listen and Richard feels good and occasionally buys himself something special and pretty like a pizza and, you know, we're happy. So thanks for listening. We, we had really good pizza Oh my gosh, last in Gardena. Week at Italian. Yeah.
at Italian, not Italy. Someone, I guess you can't trademark a, a clever construct of, of a name. There, there's two places out there which are Ital something or other, and, and this one down in Gardena by the office supply secondhand right. store where you got a beautiful chair, Richard, um, is really doing some extraordinary, incredibly thin pizza. And you can sit at the counter and watch them make it in about two minutes flat. And darn, it's great. Right, I got I got a chair which I think I think is 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 as least as old as I am. It's a very really heavy uh, officer with very heavy springs. I'm very happy with it. I have to say, I was completely mortified. The young man who was helping you, what was his name? I forgot. I forgot to. Really nice kid. He's like, oh, that's a really old one because it doesn't have. It's only got four prongs on the bottom, and they don't make those anymore because people like pitch over backwards and break their necks. You know, now they have five, so this one's really old. And I'm like, oh, great, Richard, you should get that one, and he did. So please don't tip back in your chair, darling. It's it's gonna be fine, Kim. Okay. Kim, let's look ahead. Let's let's um, let's bring this on home. So I'll I'll look ahead for the first couple, and you'll look ahead for the last couple tours. So this Saturday is my Boyle Heights Monterey Park tour. That is uh, another tour, the last tour in our California Culture series for the month of February 2014. In August of this year, this series will come back. Uh, Boyle Heights Monterey Park, uh, ethnic. Immigration patterns, neighbor, how neighborhoods change, uh, social activism, shuls becoming Pentecostal churches, uh, slow growth, xenophobia, some of the worst things you've ever heard about other Americans, fellow Americans doing to each other. All of this has taken place in Monterey Park and Boyle Heights, and we're going to go through all of it, and we're going to go taste tea at Wing Hop Fung, so... And, on, and, and we're going to the Christmas house in Boyle Heights, and I'll be talking well, about okay, that. The Christmas house doesn't exist anymore. Sight of, sight of. It's now a plane. Okay, yes. Richard? Yes. We're yeah. going to go to the site of the Christmas house, which yes, is one are. of the really formative sites in yeah. the development of uh, incredibly elaborate Christmas decorations in America. And you want to hear about it. It's a very sad, sweet, demented story. And it's just very sad that it's now a soccer field. So, but that's another story. Week after that, we've got Kim, your Hotel Horrors Main Street Vice Tour. That is, that tour is a lot of fun. B girls, taxi dancers, serial killers, mm-hmm. uh, fires caused by drunken residents falling asleep with cigarettes in bed. What you make it sound like a bad thing? Uh, just it's it, just uh, it, the th- the thrills. Oh, uh, circuses and freak shows, and tattoo artists. T- yeah, and, it's, oh, it's downtown LA was so much fun. I don't know when we're gonna get back to that kind of downtown LA. It's a great it's it's a great tour. So you should you should all get on that. That is the first of March, and then that's right. The next week, uh, the the fifteenth. Uh, well, two weeks after that, the fifteenth. Pasadena, Pasadena Confidential. That is a great tour. That's a tour about poorly behaved simians, um, rocket scientists who are interested in sex magic and um, solid rocket fuel and uh, why people named Judd shouldn't live in the town of Pasadena. Yeah, all that good stuff. And um, what's after that? Why, we've got Weird West Adams on the 20... 20- Richard... 
the 22nd erd <laughs> I guess that's March 22nd. Um, that's a tour about the Beverly Hills of the early 20th century, all the many neighborhoods that sprung up to the west of downtown and the crimes that took place there in a beautiful cemetery, Rosedale, one of our oldest, will be wandering through it and just visiting some sites of oddities and crimes and horrors from old L.A. That's a fun tour with also an undercurrent of uh, urban development and... Um, racial covenants and how black people were able to move into homes anywhere they wanted in L.A. and elsewhere. It all sort of came to a head in West Adams. So you'll enjoy that tour if you've been wondering about the large and rather confusing expanse of neighborhoods. Then we'll be into the literary series rather briefly on March 29th with Haunts of a Dirty Old Man, the Charles Bukowski tour. And uh, a really good way to get geared up for that tour would, of course, be to come to this week's Lava Sunday Salon, which is half on the theme of Bukowski. So let's make it a Bukowski spring. Come out with us. Or I guess it's, yeah, why not? It's not spring yet, but what the hell. Um, The Real Black Dahlia, Saturday, April 5th, our most popular crime bus tour. That one always does sell out in advance. And if you've been thinking about getting on the bus, it's a great time to buy your ticket and ensure that you will. We walk in the footsteps of Elizabeth Short, the victim in the still incredibly notorious unsolved 1947 mutilation murder. She wasn't cut in half while she was alive, kids. We'll tell you all about it. She's a lot more interesting in life than in death, and we'll really focus on the milieu in which she lived and this kind of strange world of transitory, transient women in post-war L.A. and all the trouble that they got up to and, and just the sort of incredible loneliness of that very busy city. And uh, just a quick mention, our Tom Waits tour, which was on the schedule for April, is being uh, pushed forward, or pushed back, I guess, to July. So if you've been planning on getting on the Waits bus, uh, look at our calendar. It'll be July 19, and we hope to see you there. Good job, Kim. Thank you. Thank you, listeners at home, for listening. I want to ask you to continue to listen And I want to remind you, you can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, Midoriya, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between Be loved.